0: Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients. Popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack. Snack. And pick up Skinny Pop original popcorn today.
1: We got another day of NBA action, and with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet five dollars get two hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers spend $5, get 200 dollars back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down, it go down in the pimp. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.
0: By now, you know that sound. It's the sound of the Home Depot. But what about those sounds? Hey, it's Mistress Carrie, reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 76 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known as DCU. And since their beginnings as a credit union for the employees of the Digital Equipment Corporation in 1979, DCU has never lost sight of its roots of being a not-for-profit financial cooperative owned by and operated by and for their members. And a lot of things can change in 40 years, but some things remain constant like DCU's unwavering commitment to provide exceptional service and to make a positive impact in the communities where their members live and work. So no matter what their members' unique goals are, they are committed to help them the only way they know how, the DCU way, which consists of three simple philosophies that guide every DCU member. People come first, do the right thing, and make a difference. Giving back is central to what they do, And I know this because I've been working with DCU for close to two decades now. And above everything, it's about the people for DCU. And that's why I'm honored to have him as a sponsor of the Mistress Carrie podcast. Okay, this episode of the podcast is a lot of music, baby. I hope you're ready. JJ French is the founding member of Twisted Sister, the host of the French Connection podcast, He's an artist manager, a keynote speaker, and an author. He just released the book, Twisted Business, Tales from My Life in Rock and Roll. And J.J. and I talked about a lot of stuff. If there's one thing J.J. French knows, it's music. And we talked about the technology, the inspiration, the touring, the history of rock and roll. The rivalry between the inner city bands and the suburban bands that pretty much every city knows about. We talked about radio and artists like the Ramones and David Bowie and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. What he considers the heyday of rock and roll in 1971. And we also talked about the future of rock and roll. And along the way, how technology has changed it. Everything from MTV to the internet. If you're a lover of rock music and a scholar of rock history, well, this episode is for you. I could have spent hours talking to JJ French because, above all things, he is a passionate lover of rock. And how can you not love a guy like that? So, allow me to introduce you to JJ French.
1: have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh God! Oh yeah!
0: You are now on the record, Mr. JJ French. Okay. L- Lots gonna of be, pressure. I'm going to
1: very. Po- I'll be very political. and I have no comment. <laughs> Follows every question that you've asked me. I'm taking the fifth on every question. So uh, go ahead.
0: How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you very much. I'm I'm fine this morning, and I switched over to an Apple phone Uh, yesterday. I've never had Apple phones in my life. I've been Android, but I've Apple with everything else. And someone said you really got to just do the whole thing. It makes life easier, and man, it is. um, It's been a chore
0: converting
1: because when you go from one platform to another, it's not like a sync. You know, it's it's hours. It took like seven hours to transfer everything over. So It is kind anyway. of
0: like joining a cult because I'm an Apple person and a lot of my computer, like, really computer nerdy friends, they don't like a company kind of being all up in your business the way that Apple is. <laughs> and because I use all, Apple everything, everything talks to each other and it's so easy because I'm not a computer smart person that it makes it easy and it and seems common sense like, but um, I know people that are like, it, 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 it's too easy. It's like, it's talking down to me.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I've heard that. And I've also heard that, yes, it's, but doesn't everybody know everything about everybody at this point? I mean, I mean is there anything really left to chance? Uh, you know, you want to go online find out anything about anything as we all know, especially obsessive fans can find anything they want yeah. whenever they want. So, uh, But, you know, it used to be, you know, back in the old days, uh, we could only see a band once on television, maybe a couple of times a year. There was a mystique. You don't have that any longer because the, the desire to know everything, including the color of the belly button lint of the guitar player, <laughs> unfortunately, is out there. And um, and uh, ah, there we go. Da let night. there be light. And um, yeah, so that that's a little. I don't know. It's 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 good and bad. You know, I, I'm a I'm a I was born in 1952. So you could say I'm a. You could say, well, you, aren't you more of a luddite? You you know. But because I, I listen to vinyl all the time, the fact is, I like technology. I love technology. I just wonder where it's all going. But you know, I asked my father a question once. My father died in 1984. But I, I asked him. He was born in 1910. And sometime around, I don't know, 1980, 81, I was sitting around talking to him and I said, how do, how do you view the experience of being born in 1910, you know, and, and the evolution of civilization? And he said, look, he said, my apartment building on 110th street, they put electric light bulb in the hallway around 1920. He was 11 years old, 1921. He said they converted from gas to electric in his hallway. And he said, so I saw them put an electric light bulb in my hallway and I saw us land on the moon. So he said, that's a pretty damn big technological jump. And I have to say it really trumps everything we've lived through, because I don't know what the jump is going from seven TV stations to 10,000 TV stations. I don't know if the jump. I, I mean, not to say there are not enormous technological jumps, but I just think Going converting to electricity in a hallway and landing on the moon in one's lifetime is pretty is pretty amazing.
0: I think the only thing that would touch it is the invention of the internet, just because it it changed every aspect of your life how you how you bank, how you in, interact with your family. Um, it, it literally changed the human experience as a whole. But the concept of not having electricity in your building. And then watching Neil Armstrong on television land on the moon, like, it is kind of unreal when you really do stop and think about what's happened, say, in the last hundred years.
1: Yeah, exactly. So while I won't disagree with what you're saying, um, and it has transformed our life, I still think going from an electric light bulb to landing on the moon in a lifetime is pretty damn impressive. Yeah, it is.
0: It is. And living through the depression and all of the other things. Yeah, that-
1: sure. Both. yeah, right. In the world wars, you know, and and I mean, he was in World War Two. And yeah, of course, so much of it. Look, we live in such an amped time. Uh, you know, everyone's got the, the new phone because the last six months, things have changed. You know, yeah. oh, my God. And it take forever, you know, for things to change. And now things move at, at a rapid pace. However, we also are in a very strange world because. While people say that we have the attention span of a gnat on methadone, <laughs> the fact is we also will sit there and watch ninety episodes of a episodic television series on Netflix. So we either want to spend one second digesting something, or we'll spend a hundred hours watching Tiger King, <laughs> it, right? Or or you know, or or Squid Game, or or Game of you know, or game whatever it is. I mean, I think. You know, someone wrote posted on my on my Facebook page, which I'm sure is a common joke, which is I finished Netflix. Like that's what COVID did. You yeah, know? you
0: found the end of the internet.
1: Yeah, like we've just exactly you've reached the end. I've watched my, my wife and I have watched so many series. We've forgotten how many series we've watched. We've watched so many of them. We just rewatched Down Abbey because we had watched the Squid Game and I needed to recover.
0: how did you feel about the squid game i loved it but it was such a social commentary that it hurt my brain
1: it hurt my brain you know i I, once the rules were established in episode one you kind of knew where this was going yeah and there was no turning back you either turned it off because you couldn't handle it yeah or you kind of resigned yourself to what next and they kept on getting more insane in the in the concept of of what's next. And I don't want to blow this for anybody. Yeah, let's I don't just want to ruin say, it for
0: anybody, but let's
1: just say that the controversy of Squid Game is um, the, the ability to handle the imagination of this director <laughs> and how he decided to convert his social commentary and the South Korean economic and social scheme into this game and incorporate within it a framework of rules um uh and results that are you just have to wonder what kind of mind this guy has like did did he go to therapy like did he have therapy because i i have a crazy imagination man and also what i found interesting was that he got turned down by every studio you know he pitched this story and I can imagine. I, I really would, would love to know what that elevator pitch was. You know, like that two-minute <laughs> elevator pitch. You know, how I'm not, and, I, and I'm not going to say a word because I don't want to blow it. But right. you know what I'm talking yes. about, right? How do you do an elevator pitch on Squid on Squid Game, especially explaining how it's all going to wind up because everybody wants to know how it's going to wind up. And of course, there's going to they're going to come back with yet another. I think they're going to do another series. But anyway, the point is he couldn't get arrested, and then Netflix decided to step in. And it turned out to be the biggest show in the history of Netflix.
0: Well, it cost them twenty-five million to make, and they estimate that it made about nine hundred million. So yeah. whoever said yes to that elevator pitch just got an extra week of vacation and like yeah. It's a like bonus. that's the guy that
1: signed the Beatles. Right. You know, as opposed to the guy who didn't sign the Beatles who committed suicide. Right. So for all those executives at all those stations that didn't take them. Right. They're much more in jeopardy of having a horrible holiday season, seriously, <laughs> than the guy who, who greenlit Squid Game. Um. Anyway, just so look, guys, if you think Game of Thrones pushed your buttons as far as how far you could take certain uh, elements of violence, welcome to the new front. <laughs> welcome to the new frontier. Yeah, right.
0: Well, I think it's funny that we're talking about kind of the world having access to all of our personal lives. Meanwhile, you're literally sitting here because you just wrote a book (laughs) about your life. So now like you're offering up whatever people couldn't Google about you as a book now.
1: Yeah. And I and I decided what the hell I'm going to be, you know, I'm 69 years old. What's left? You know, I've done pretty much. Everything I've ever wanted to do in my life, and and there's nothing that can be said about me that's going to prevent somebody from wanting to do business with me at any point because it's all out there anyway. Look, you know, going back to the band's earliest, uh, you know, uh, incarnation as a transvestite rock band. You know, once you once you commit yourself as a transvestite rock musician, you've opened yourself up to every single rumor of what you could possibly be (laughs) for the rest of your life. So there's no turning back. So 50 years ago, I was gay. You know, I was a fag. I was a druggie, you know, like that was whatever the pejorative comments are going to be made about what you are and how you are. So since everyone already had a preconceived idea um, or many people about what it must be to become what we became. Um, and with every kind of insulting, cliched, stereotypical line you could ever have, there's really nothing left. I mean, the only thing left to say is we were none of those things. And actually, we were the straightest band in the world. And there's the shocker. <laughs> it you was know? all performance sh- art. Right. The shocker was not that we that we the, the shocker was not that we did all that stuff. The shocker was that behind all that was a business concept. And it was a and. Um, And our biggest fear was that we'd be found out that how straight we were. I mean, think about how funny that is in in reality. Like I interviewed Rob Halford when this book came out, Confess. Did you read the book? I haven't gotten through all of it yet. Well, you know, there's been
0: a lot of books that have come out recently and and they're all, you know, between um, Dave Grohl and Brian Johnson and Nikki Sixx and Cassandra Peterson and your book. Like, I can't wait for winter and blizzards, so that i have the time to literally sit down with all of these books because they're all amazing
1: yeah well rob's case and twisted sister and judas priest are you know connected at the hip because we started out the same year which is 1973 and 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 we had illustrious long you know careers but you know rob's book is about and this is not a secret you know he's He's gay and and he the fear that he had of his fan base following, finding that out scared him, terrified him for, for years and years reasons. and years, for obvious reasons and terrified him. And And that's not the secret. I mean, that's why the book is called Confess. And he goes into graphic detail about his entire life history and why it is what it is. But I'm interviewing Rob and I'm thinking, Rob, you know, this is so weird. You lived a life, a professional life through which you were in fear that if people found out That you were gay it would destroy your career and i was living my life in fear that people found out we weren't gay it would destroy (laughs) our career (laughs) you know i mean think about that for a second yeah we portrayed ourselves as this insane group of guys which Professionally, we were, but it was a professional decision, and it wasn't one. We didn't live like that. We lived, in fact, it was so not that it was so normal that it was almost like being in a Jehovah Witness group. Uh, because uh, me and Mark and D used to travel together in a bus that had the words "no fun" on it, because uh, it said "no fun." There was the "no fun" bus, you know, in our, in our, our caravan of buses. Me, Dean, Mark. Why was the no fun bus? you finished finish your show at the arena, you'd take a shower, you'd go into the bus, you never hung out. To party with the record label, never hung out to hang out with other bands. We just want to get to the next city. Uh, you'd go into the bus. We didn't allow cigarette smoking. There was no booze on the bus whatsoever. Um, no girls were allowed on the bus. I, mean, I was married. He was married. I was married to Mark's sister. Uh, there were there were many reasons why there was nobody on the bus, especially because of the fact that why would you even want to have a fan on the bus that's underage? It could somehow even say that they were on the bus. So you don't even want that. So the 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 the, the, the bus driver, strict rules. Anyone comes on the bus has to show their ID. No woman can be on the bus alone. You know, has to come up. If it's if it's somebody with a boyfriend or a relative, that's okay. You know, listen to what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, this that is the no sister. fun bus.
1: This is Twisted Sister Heavy Metal. We would get on the bus. Uh, we throw on a movie, read a magazine and go to sleep and wake up the next day in the town that we're in. And that's how we toured. And uh, that was fine for us because we didn't drink. We didn't smoke. But do you believe that the road crews didn't want to travel with us because you know we had all these extra bunks? So it meant that crews had to travel with us and like, oh man, we're not on the no fun bus. <laughs> what the f- what? Can I curse? Yeah, curse, bucket, whatever. Yeah. You can say whatever. goes, what the fuck, man? I got in this business to party. This is like a library here, you know. So and that was. And just this is before. in the
0: eighties. Like this is yeah. in this is in the crazy time, like the heyday of the rock and roll party, MTV, like all of it.
1: Yeah. And there was no interest on our end. None. The band, you know, we weren't an 80s band. We were a 70s band that made it in the 80s. That's really what we were. We were a 70s bar band, completely different animal than the rats and the warrants and the white tigers, all that other stuff. We were a bar. We were a hard bitten, cynical bunch of New York guys in a bar band that um, had a philosophy about how to perform, which was take no prisoners, destroy every band we played with. It was a very predatory mentality and we've always lived by it. And And a lot of it had to do with the fact that we never we work so much. In the book, I list all the shows we played at the back of the book, which is kind of your, your eyeballs can burn looking at all the shows. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, you do you do you do for me, nine thousand performances. Um, what happens is you go, I just want to go home. You know, I want to finish the tour, go home, sit down, watch a movie. I, 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 the, the, the partying just didn't exist and it never existed for Mark and D because they never drank into drugs. I have a history of it, which I detail in the book, which most people didn't know. So what did I do? I told the history. I told my five-year drug addict, drug dealing history, which ended 50 years ago. So when I talk about that guy, that John Sigal guy, not J.J. French, but me, I, it's so far, it's so long ago, it's so many years ago that um, I have to look at photos of myself and remind myself that I lived this insane, crazy, you know, 1960s, hippie, super, grateful, dead, drug-dealing, drug addict lifestyle. And that lifestyle fell apart and destroyed almost took me down with it, which is why I became so anti-drug and alcohol.
0: Well, you I want to go back and I want to I, I kind of talk about where you came from because I love finding out from musicians and songwriters and artists what it was that introduced you to music in general. So you talk about your dad, right, that grew up watching them change a light bulb in his New York apartment. What kind of music did, did your parents expose you to? What were you listening to growing up? And then at some point in every music fan's life, they go from being exposed to the music by the people around them, their older siblings, the cool uncle, the parents, and then you, you say, no, 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 this one is mine. And you discover your first band. So what was the music that kind of introduced you to your love of music?
1: Well, my parents used to play uh, Perry Como and classical music and um, the Weavers. So for those who don't know who the Weavers are, the Weavers were a folk group from the late 50s into the 60s that were the quintessential folk group of the era. If you were in New York... If you were like an urban dweller, probably mostly Jewish, I would think um, uh, you were fans of folk music, Woody Guthrie and all that stuff. The Weavers were it. And the first show I ever went to was Weavers at Carnegie Hall, which was a famous show in 1963. It was a reunion. It was a 15 year reunion for the Weavers. So Pete Seeger, who bought who. Influence, of course, Bob Dylan, influenced Bruce Springsteen in a lot of ways, uh, was in the band. And um, so in that group. And and so I grew up listening to the Weavers a lot and going to the Weaver shows. But what happened was um, the big break, the really big break was that in February of 63, I got really sick and was home. And uh, I, I was bored and I asked my mother to give me a radio and she gave me a tabletop radio. So I turn on the tabletop radio and I hear... Number one, 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 W.A.B.C. Oh, my God. Screaming disc jockey. I didn't know who they were, what it was. And the number one song they played was a song called Hey Paula, which was a doo song. That was the number one song. And I went, wow, number one. Huh? Number one. Okay. Well, in those days, you're a radio person. So let me put this in there. In those days, the top 40 radio stations W.A.B.C. was the number one station in the United States. 50,000 watt clear channel, 50,000 watts, which means you could hear it over nine states late at night. I mean, it was huge. And their disc jockeys were super famous. You know, Bruce Morrow, Scott Muni, um, I think Herb Oscar Anderson, Bob Dayton, Dan Ingram was the drive time guy. These were all legendary guys. These guys were all in the Radio Hall of Fame. And uh, but I didn't know about fast talking DJs, you know. So they go blah 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 blah. Number blah, one, blah, 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 blah. so they would play these songs, and the and the top forty was a misnomer. It was actually the top twenty, and they played the same same songs every hour on the hour. So if you had a number one song on ABC, you got played twenty four times a day, easily, easily. I don't know what the most played song is these days on radio. Maybe it's.
0: But it Twice functions the same yeah. way. Top forty radio. It's like if if you're in heavy rotation, you're gonna get played like every hour, hour, and ten minutes. Yeah. yeah.
1: So so hey Paul gets gets played. And I and I was so blown away by this. Number one, roll and roll. I didn't know what number one meant, but I knew number two, number three. They kept saying there was a countdown. So I listened to the countdown show the next Tuesday night, and it was it was Bruce Morrow's uh, countdown, Cousin Brucey. And of course, you know, cousin Bruce, I mean, Bruce Morris is a super Mm -hmm. legend. Right. So I I interviewed him a couple of years ago. Stories were incredible. But anyway, you know, I I wasn't I was infatuated by the charts. It was two things were going on. The music was number one, but the charts were number two. Like I didn't understand what number one meant and wanted to understand what number one meant. I was convinced that it was a vote that the world did every week. The world somehow voted. I didn't know how it <laughs> voted, but it voted or called up and proclaimed this song number one. So the next week the chart comes out, and the next week Hey Paul, is still number one, but the other songs kind of jockeyed around in different positions from two to three to four, or five. Third week comes around, Hey Paula is number one again. This goes on for six weeks, and I say to my mom, "You know, there's this thing. It's a number one song. It's called Hey Paula. I am a, I'm assuming that's the number one song in the world, and it's going to be number one forever." And my mother, I think, just looked at me like, you know, he's delirious, uh, he's sick, and what the hell, I don't even know what he's talking about. So the the song got knocked off of number one by He's So Fine by the Chiffons, and I got upset and started crying. And I said to my mother, how how could that happen? (laughs) I'm 11 years old. She's like, I don't know. I said, well. Uh, is there a recount? You know, I demand a recount. You know, this is fake news. <laughs> this is, this can't be. So I, I said, I said something like they play 45s. Um, So do you have to buy a record? And, uh, and she said, there's a record store on 107th street on Broadway. And I said, take me. So she took me and in the book, it's detailed, you know, this must've been the, the cutest conversation ever. I walk into this, Little mom and pop record store, and there's a little old lady I can still see her now behind the counter. And the counter, you know, in those days, albums were in the windows, but people didn't buy albums, they bought 45. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, they had West Side Story, you know, they had the sound of music because those were big albums at the time. I think West Side Story was the number one album in 1961. And I, I walk up to the counter, and the woman had uh printed out official hit charts from the three radio stations, so the WABC chart. W-I-N-S chart W-M-C-H-R, unofficial cardboard in other words the radio station supplied the charts you know right. so i i now have in my hand proof that there's a that there's a actual charted history you know <laughs> and I, and i'm holding the card up and i'm going and it's got like the dj's picture on it like' it's, you know dj of the week and then it had the pick hit of the song it was the, it showed the top 30 songs and the pick hit at the bottom and a picture of the dj and i'm 11 and my eyeballs opened up like this, this was this was it this was it. You're I, already
0: showing acumen for the business side of the
1: business. Yeah. So I say to the woman, I went, um, if I I said, Do you have hey Paula? She goes, Yeah. I go, how much is it? She goes, 49 cents. <clears throat> so I look at my mom. I said, can I buy it? Yeah. I said to the woman, this. I said, if I buy it, will it go back up to number one? Now, let me just say <laughs> this in my sweet naivete. You know, it was a sweet thing to say. Because it was, means I was supporting a song I liked. Yeah. But the woman, God bless her soul, did not look at me and go, you're an asshole. It's run by the mob. And obviously <laughs> the song has had its fucking run, you idiot. And now it's time for another number one, which she knew the truth. Right. But wasn't about to tell me.
0: You're so 11. Just, you don't need the real world yet.
1: So she just said, maybe, son, maybe. And that really was the beginning of the end of my life, <laughs> that response. <laughs> that was the beginning of the end you know they say something like a friend of mine um lost millions of dollars in horse racing and i said how'd you lose it he said well i won my the first race i ever bet on i won 400 bucks and i spent the next 30 years trying to get back that 400 dollars (laughs) and two two million dollars of you know trying to get back that 400 so that that created this insatiable desire to understand the charts. You know, so every week I would get out here the top 20 songs on WABC, the countdown. And I would take these cardboard sheets from my father's Chinese laundry and write them down and make copies and go to school and hand them out every Wednesday morning. Like I thought people cared. I mean, I mean, you know how you go to a restaurant, they throw a menu on the table you because know, you need to read the menu, you know, your right. order. So I would, the kids would show up in class and I'd be like handing them out these cardboards of the hit charts. I don't care if anyone even looked at them or threw them away. I didn't pay any attention. I was obsessed with this stuff. So, uh, so this goes on February, March, April, May of, of, of 63. And we all know what happened um, then Kennedy gets assassinated, you know, which, oh, my God, you know, is horrible. And your now dad I'm, worked
0: on his campaign, right? No, my mother did. My oh, mother your mother did. did.
1: My mother did. Yeah, She was a political consultant. So she worked with every major Democratic candidate that ran for any office, especially in New York. My mother ran the, the John Kennedy headquarters up, uptown. There's a picture of me standing in front of the headquarters in the book with my Kennedy for president button or whatever. And um, and then, of course, the Beatles hit. So, so I Want to Hold Your Hand gets on the radio at midnight, 1963. And it changed the world. You know, obviously it changed the world. But as much as it changed the world, um, it wasn't until they got on television on uh, February 9th, 1964, and that really changed the world. So I think at that point, this is really, this is really the key of, of the whole thing. I think at the moment I watched the Beatles on television and I said to my mother... You know, so my mother wanted me to be go me to be in politics and my father wanted me to be a jewelry salesman, but one of his friends had been murdered in broad daylight, uh, had been killed. And I was involved in an armed robbery with a diamond dealer in my building six months earlier. So I didn't think jewelry business was a safe business to be in. And then after Kenny was assassinated, I didn't think politics was a safe business to be in. So when I saw the Beatles on that Sullivan, they clicked, they checked all the boxes, you know, oh my God, girls, whatever, whatever it was, rock and roll. So I said to my mom, I wanna, I think I wanna be a rock and roll star. And I think uh, if somebody had put their hand on my shoulder at that very moment and said, okay, John, you know, you are going to be one and you're gonna have a gold record, which I guess was the symbol of success. It was a gold record, whatever that meant, you know? And I would go, oh, when? Like in three years, four years? You remember I'm 11 and they said, no, You'll have your first taste of success 20 years and six months from now. (laughs) I think I would have said, fuck that. I'm going to stay in school and get an education. So ignorance is bliss. So there's your portal to the beginnings.
0: It's shocking to me how many conversations I have with artists, how often that Beatles appearance on Ed Sullivan is, is cited as that turning point point. And it's like, it's so hard for, because of everything we talked about, the internet, it's so hard for people to wrap their brain around one moment in time being watched and being so influential because there's so much information now, but I can't even imagine what music would have gone to. Had they not been on Ed Sullivan that night, it changed everything and inspired countless legendary musicians that have inspired all of the great rock and roll.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible. You know, if you, if you think, thinking about it, trying to wrap your head around it is almost trying to, it's like almost saying there's the end of the universe is somewhere, but we don't know where the end of the universe is because the minute you find the end of it, there's something beyond it. Right. So how could the world have happened without the Beatles? How could, how could rock music have evolved? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I write a Beatle column for Goldmine magazine, and I wrote an article about how um after the Beatles hit, we we experienced three or four years of some of the most amazing blues singers that ever come out of England, you know, Van Morrison and 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 um, Oh, God. uh God, Eric Burden and Paul Rogers and and Rod Stewart. You know, the list goes on like incredibly you a know, guy from Manford, man. These are amazing singers that we never would have known. We never would have known about those guys. The Beatles just broke the door open and blew the world apart. And, you know, the last 50s artist, fifth, meaning holdover from the 50s, that had the number one single prior to the Beatles was Bobby Vinton. Which I think was there, I said it again. That was the song that ended that era, you know, and the door just slammed, you know, bang on that era. It's kind of like, it was like the dinosaurs, you know, it was the meteor that hit Mexico, they say that just wiped out the dinosaurs. And that was the meteor that hit Mexico. It was cataclysmic. And, you know, we've experienced other cataclysmic events, not to that magnitude. I mean, when Elvis hit, you know, Rock Around the Clock hit, Elvis came, he wiped out the Sinatras and the Bing Crosbys. you know, he effectively did that. Right. He wiped that out. The Beatles coming, they wipe, they wipe out all of that. And then the Beatles, you know, leave us all in 1970. And, um, I have to tell you, you know, 1970, I was 18 years old, pretty bereft, you know, the Beatles were breaking up and let it be comes out. It's the last Beatles record. We're all sitting around going, twiddling our thumbs going, Oh my God, what's next? What what's next? Because we were in fear. There was like a lot, there was pain. Of course we were, we were, um, anesthetized from tons of narcotics to, to help get over it. You know, we yeah. were taking monumental amounts of drugs to well, kind of handle the fact. There was amazing
0: music coming out right then too. Well, you would come out of Woodstock and all that.
1: Well, forget that 71 brought us. Every Picture Tells a Story, Who's Next, Sticky Fingers, Jethro Tull's Aqualung, Elton John's first album. Um, it brought out uh, uh, American Pie, it brought out uh, Paul Simon, it, it, some of the greatest records in uh, Carole King's tapestry. I'm sorry, uh, some of the greatest records ever happened. So what happened was the Beatles ended and we were thrown a lifeline and that lifeline 71 set up the whole classic rock era, which exists you know, today, you know, Zeppelin 4, you know, excuse me. These are albums that came out in 71. You know, these are monumental records. You know, who's next? Monumental records, sticky fingers. You know, so we got over quickly. But now we're looking at a, you know, we're looking at a landscape now, which is so different. And I and I am, um, and everyone always looks at, well, I'm so old. I'm Yoda to many people, you know, so <laughs> I lived through so much. And they always go like, so what do you think is going to be there? like if I knew You know, I know that rock doesn't sell, you know, anywhere near what it used to. And it's not that I'm trying to usher in its demise, but I do throw this example out to everybody. And I say, prove me wrong. And this is the example. When I was 17 years old, the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, Zepp, Floyd, Grateful Dead, Janis Joplin, Bob Dylan, Jimi Hendrix. When I was 17, none of them were older than 25 think about this for a second when i was 17 every great famous rock star was not older than 25 years old now i say please list for me the 25 year old rock stars right now please let me know who they are because i can tell you the 25 year old hip-hop artists rap artists country artists female pop artists damn, I can't, you know, if you're going to throw a slipknot at me, they're not 25. You know, you're going to throw a muse at me. They're not 25. The, they are phenomenal bands for sure. But where's the 25-year-old, the 20-year-old rock star who's making it hip to, to love rock the way we loved rock? And I don't necessarily mourn it like, oh, man, you know, what's happened to our life? Because I also don't think anyone has a right to do that either. You know, life goes on, like life goes on, shit goes on. You know, if if rock really does not come back in the way it used to, so what? It had a great 50-year run of fabulous music. Things don't last forever and ever and ever. Country music today does not sound like country. Country music is Death Leopard with a cowboy hat. That's true. What, that's what country music and bedazzled jeans.
0: Said. Don't forget the bedazzled jeans.
1: Yeah, well, I just came back from 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 uh, Nashville. My God, you know, uh, there's I more was just there up. a
0: couple months ago. There's more rock and hip hop there than country music now at all.
1: It's it's kind of insane. So I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but but there are there's a dearth of great twenty five year old rock stars. Doesn't mean they're not kids that want to do it. But the pathways are much different. When you were days. coming yeah. up,
0: when you were coming up in music, you're in New York in the '70s, '60s, really. Well, but like, which you mean
1: they talking about Twisted or me personally?
0: Well, b- both. I mean, Twisted obviously was '70s, but but as you're coming up, growing up in Boston, and this was right before my time because I was born in '72, but. That, that kind of 70s era in New York, it, it seemed like it was an alien planet. What was it? I mean, when you're talking about like Blondie and the Ramones and the punk movement and the parties and CBs, like all of that kind of stuff. What was that like for you?
1: Well, I didn't think any of those bands were any good. So, I mean, the bottom line was that I was a '60s person. So, I went to the Fillmore East every week. Like you guys had the Boston Tea Party, yeah, in Boston. And let's talk about mm-hmm. that Boston Tea Party, the Factory in, the, in Philadelphia, Fillmore East in New York. Same groups played every one of those. That was like a it was a circuit. Grateful Dead, Traffic, Procol Harum, Led Zeppelin, Jefferson Airplane, Jazz, Joplin, Chicago, Canned Heat. Iron Butterfly, Albert King, BB King, Muddy Waters, uh, Jimi Hendrix. These artists played every week in those three cities. Every week, no big deal. You want to go see Jimi Hendrix? Go to the Tower. Go go down to the Factory, or go to the Boston Tea Parties playing a show tonight. You want to go see Led Zeppelin, Fillmore East? Go go see him. Three dollar ticket, four dollar ticket, right? Every single weekend. So I had four years of that, four years of every weekend going to the Fillmore, and paying three bucks for one show. If you want to see all four shows, it was twelve bucks. So big deal. So you saw Zeppelin four times. You know, you saw Jethro Tull four times. You saw Rod Stewart four times. You saw Jeff Beck four times. You saw Jimi Hendrix four times. So you got all of that going on, and then that ended uh, in seventy one. And then comes the big question. So what happens next? So what happens next is the dolls happen next. And, um, you know, it didn't impress me because I was, coming out of an era of musical excellence that will never be replicated again by the greatest artists in history. And the dolls were, you know, the de-evolution of that. They were not an example of greatness. They were, uh, uh, they were kind of a Rolling Stones-ish, Mick Keith kind of like a thing and kind of ushering in this kind of um dumbed down version of what it took to be a rock and roll musician. So instead of spending years learning how to play, you could just like hit a chord and, you know, and have a band, which I guess, serves a function. But as a musician at 20 years old, it didn't serve a function to me. I went to see them a lot. And and I was like, man, they look good, but they can't play. And what that's where we're at as a society in New York. You know, that really puzzled me. I didn't get it. And but I was 20 years old and I was converting from a Grateful Dead Freak to a glam guy. But Bowie, on the other hand, let's talk about David Bowie. David Bowie's influence was enormous. And David Bowie's band was spectacular. And David Bowie was a great songwriter and he was a great singer and he was a great performer. So you go see Bowie, which I did in September of 72 at Carnegie Hall. And then you go see the dolls two nights later and you go, that's what we got? That's our <laughs> that that's our version of but really. And Bowie was at the show I was at. There's a photo of me and David Bowie together at the Mercer Arts Center. I'm actually sitting in front of him. And I remember cuz I'd seen him 2 days before and I remember thinking, "God man, I just saw wow, that's amazing." He's sitting behind me with Mick Ronson. And and the dolls were hip because they were part of the Warhol scene, you know, but they weren't a particularly good band. We're talking s- strictly music here, you know, yeah. musicians like learning how to play. You know, we spend years dissecting Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, um uh terry kath from chicago um you know leon russell the greatest performers on the planet earth and then this is what we have so eh. so I, i remember thinking man if you could have a band that looked like them but could play that would be great that was the whole reason why twisted sister in my mind even was existed and when i joined the band that was called that was called silver star that became twisted sister all the guys in that group said yeah man we want to be the dolls but But better, but because we could play. However, However, here's the big split. The big split is that the Dolls represented an original music force, which heretofore did not exist in the New York City area, except for the Fillmore East. There were no original bands. And we, Twisted Sister, were a bar band that played the suburbs, that played cover music, because that's how you learned how to play. You know, you learn how to play because you played Smoke on the Water or We're an American Band or or Aqualung or whatever. You learned how to actually play correctly and sing correctly. I and mean, we play Bowie and Lou Reed and Moth. Look, you can make a case that Lou Reed's voice is terrible. I will tell you that he's one of my favorite singers. You know, he just happens to be someone I really like. And I happen to think his songwriting is fantastic. But, you know, when you're covering a Lou Reed song, you know how you fuck it up, you sing it on key. That's how you fuck, that. That's how you fuck up a Lou Reed song. And, and you know, as a cover singer, and I can't sing, so Lou Reed was made for me, you know, because God created Lou Reed and Dylan so I could do cover material, which is wonderful because you can't fuck those up, no matter how bad you try. I mean, I saw Dylan recently, and I sat there for an hour and didn't understand a fucking word. I think after like an hour, I heard him go somewhere, I heard him go, tangled up in blue. And I went, Oh, it's tangled up in blue. I think I, <laughs> I or, or I heard, I heard him go, how is this one somewhere? And I was like, how is this one? But anyway, um, so, so here's what happens. So Twisted Sister now is playing the bars and we're learning our, we're learning our craft. And then this, But we're in Long Island and we were in New Jersey and this thing in New York City is happening. This thing, this underground thing at CBGBs, is starting to happen. So a girl who I was dating at the time said, there's a band called the Ramones. I want to take you to see them. So we went to a Sunday afternoon matinee show at CBGBs, of which there was 20 people in the room and it was in August of 75. And here was the difference between the Ramones and the Dolls. The Ramones may have been simple but they knew exactly who they were. And they knew exactly how to play the originals that they wrote. And And if it wasn't the originals and they were covering a Ronette song, they did it with a certain panache and a certain attitude that was absolutely as clear as day. And I went, wow, there's a band that doesn't have to be You know, you don't have to master what we were trying to master, blues, guitar, playing, and all this other stuff. But this is just a band that knew where it was going. So I was very impressed by them. You know, I've always remained impressed by them. I have their records. I listen to them all the time because there's a uniformity in their approach. You know, they really knew who the hell they were, the marketing of them, whether they knew it or not. It was really defined. So then comes Blondie, Talking Heads, all this other stuff. Meanwhile, we're out there in the hinterlands, You know, if you look at New York City like a donut, if you look at the tri-state area like a donut, you put Manhattan in the middle, and then you have, go out 50 miles, in that 50-mile radius, there are hundreds of clubs that are populated by blue-collar Italian Jewish fans who love Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, and they don't care about these, these original bands in New York City. Meanwhile, these original bands in New York City probably could care less about Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and anybody else. You had a philo- philosophical split. Our fans never really went for that, and those fans never really went for us. So it was a deep divide. And every time they tried to take one of those bands from Seabees and put them in a club in Long Island or New Jersey, they bombed because the kids wanted to hear – zeppelin or floyd you know this was a real big difference boston was a lot
0: like that too yeah
1: so twisted learned its craft by 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 uh copying great bands or learned how to play and eventually worked our originals and then eventually when we came into manhattan you know people said well you don't play manhattan i said well they can't afford us we make way too much money and there's no club that can hold us because we were selling out clubs in the tri-state area that held two, three, four, five thousand 5,000 people, which by the way, these bands in New York couldn't put a hundred people in these rooms. So what did we do we do? We played the Academy of Music, which was a giant theater and sold that out. The only band in history without a record deal to sell that up because the popularity was so huge. So when we talk about that period of time with the era of the seventies, and it wasn't that I didn't like them or felt they had no relevance, but you need to understand our mentality was we were trying to become successful. And so we really just didn't pay much attention. It was like, yeah, we know they're there. Yeah. They're interesting. Yeah. Whatever. If they have a hit record, I mean, Blondie had a hit record talking Heads, Sure. These bands are important, but we were operating in a, in a, for a band, for an area that was so closely associated, so tight in, it was really separated out. In a in a really big way so all of that was happening and it didn't affect us in the least but it but we were not cool they were all cool because right. all the journalists right. loved them and they hated us because we we're like a long island you're a suburb band. you're a
0: suburb band yeah i grew yeah. up in the suburbs of boston and there was always that rivalry between okay. the cool kids in the city and and the suburb kids, which which went straight into even our radio stations, because you are very well aware of the radio rivalries in Boston that I grew up with, with the AAF versus BCN, and AAF was the radio station for the kids in the suburbs, and BCN was the radio station for the kids in the city.
1: Yeah, it was alternative versus versus kind of more commercial.
0: Yeah, rock and, roll, and if wasn't you were it? ten yeah. minutes outside the city, you may as well have been riding cows to school, and and we you were made to feel that way. So we had to find something that was ours.
1: You know what? I, I, you're one of the few people I could ever talk to about this that really understand the atmosphere that we were working under. It was exactly that. You had yeah. you had you had um, W L I R became the alternative station of choice in Long Island. And they played all of the alternative artists. And then you had PLJ and the other and the more mainstream rock stations. And we catered to the mainstream rock stations. We never catered to the LIRs. The LIR started out as a mainstream rock station, but when they evolved into an alternative station um, and became one of the biggest alternative stations in the country, uh, Dennis McNamara was the program director. Did you know Dennis or you heard of Dennis McNamara's name? I know the name, but
0: I didn't know. Very legendary.
1: I mean, you know, he asked me to be in their documentary, which I was in. But I said, Dennis, to be honest with you, by the time Twisted really started to really break big, you guys already weren't going to play us anyway. And we knew it. You know, that ship had sailed. There was a real separation. You know, for lack of a better way to describe this amongst amongst people, look at Trump, anti-Trump. Look at at the demarcation lines between that. Forgetting what you feel about it, I'm just yeah. trying to explain the no. Demarcation it's it's black line.
0: and white. It's it you're on one side or the other.
1: It was one it's, side or the other. Yeah, and you can't that's love the both. Atmosphere. Yeah, you couldn't love both. And our fans were like, yeah, our fans were like screw that. You know, we don't listen to alternative bullshit. You know, and our the alternative fans were, we don't listen to Foreigner, Boston, Led Zeppelin. You know, we were the, those were the anti You know, it was really that. So we had to figure out a way to become successful by appealing to that to that group, and we couldn't find that success. In the United States, to the point where we got a record deal, that's where we had to go to England. You know, because England, in its own bizarre, perverse understanding of Twisted Sister, they thought we were a punk band. Now, let's talk about how bizarre that is. Here we are, a straight ahead metal band. Perceived in England as a punk band by and we're signed to a punk label that is so extreme that they wouldn't even play it on alternative radio in New York. Isn't that a bit weird? So we signed a secret record. The secret records had the exploited and the cockney rejects, and they were Uber uh, you know what an oi band? You know the phrase oi bands? You know what that means? I
0: I I know where it comes from, okay. but I couldn't list you a bunch of them.
1: Okay, so oi bands were like were skinhead type, of yeah, extreme extreme punk. And and they call them oi bands cuz they would always go oi 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 as like we go yo 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 and then we go oi 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 was the version of yo. So Oi bands, uh, so we get adopted by an Oi band label. That's the last label. Also, you don't even know this. Very few people do. Virgin and, and Stiff Records came this close to signing Twisted Sister because because they heard "Leader of the Pack," which was on our demo tape, and thought it was kitschy, an alternative and considered signing Twisted having nothing to do with Under the Blade, Destroyer and all the metal stuff. We I'm were just claiming. trying to
0: wrap my brain around the idea of Twisted Sister being an alternative punk band yeah. in some. So, so Or signed to,
1: signed to Elvis Costello's label. Yeah. Okay. And here we are reviled by the alternative people in, in New York City. But all of a sudden the hip ones in England, you know, listen, you have to have a sense of the humor and a very broad view of the whole scene to get off, to, to understand the irony of all of it. And let's say that because the band ultimately became so big, it doesn't matter, but it only matters to people like you who are so involved in the scene that are kind of interested, you know, in yeah. and hopefully your list, your listeners and yeah. the, in the, in the particulars of how it all peeled itself out. But it peeled itself out in ways that I never could have anticipated. Well, it's really
0: funny that sometimes bands in England, you know, people don't even want to know their name, but they come to America and they become huge. And then there's all these artists that are in America and, and for some reason don't become huge until they go to England.
1: Yeah, well look, Zeppelin was reviled in England. And yeah. was banned. And they couldn't get arrested in England for years, you know. I, I mean, think about that for a second. You know, there was such a backlash against Queen at some time, at some point, that Queen couldn't sell records anywhere in the world except South America. Go figure. Look Everybody at Hendrix. Who doesn't love Well, okay. So the okay, so look at Hendrix. So Jimmy gets signed um by Chaz Chandler in um in August of 1966. And um, and he's playing in the Café Wa, which is in the village. And he's with a band called Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And why do I even know it was on August 3rd? Why do I even know that? Well, the reason why I know that is because the first rock concert I ever went to was August 3rd, 1966. It was the Animals in Central Park. And uh, Eric Burden and the Animals. And Keith Richards, and this has gone in history, Keith Richards' girlfriend at the time, Went to the show and told Chaz Chandler that she's got it, he's got to see a guitar player down in the village. So, turns out the first show I ever went to, which was August 3rd, 1966, that night after the show was over, Keith Richards' girlfriend took Chaz Chandler down to the Cafe Wa, saw Jimmy play at midnight. Chaz saw Jimmy and told Jimmy, Don't go anywhere, I'll be back in two weeks. Finishes out the animals tour, comes back, quits the animals, signs Jimi Hendrix and brings him to England in September of 66. And, of course, turns the music world on its ear. In much the same way that the Beatles turned the music business on its ear, Jimmy turned the rock guitar guide business on its ear. Completely destroyed everything before it, you know, to the point where, you know, they all go, oh, my God, this is like the greatest thing we've ever seen. So, yeah. So I'm of that age to have lived through enough of this stuff. And and because I'm such a rock historian and i read all the books and all that and i like to know that um what i saw was meaningful i went through my record collection recently and found six live albums of shows that i was at meaning that they were important enough to be made into live albums so six no, no i'm sorry eight no eight eight i have eight albums of shows i just happen to be um, and among them, Grateful Dead shows uh, that were that were made into the albums. But so I was many Elvis. grilled
0: cheese sandwiches.
1: <laughs> well, you know, Elvis. Did you watch the Elvis comeback special? Yeah, The 68 comeback special. Yeah. Pretty, pretty. He's incredible. He's wearing the leather jacket. Oh and yeah. Did, and did that you watch? That is t-
0: to me, that's that's Elvis. He's, sexy. he's
1: Elvis, right? Yeah. So, and did you watch the Tammy show? You ever watch the Tammy show? I don't you think so. No. So the Tammy show is the greatest rock co- concert ever filmed. And um, if you never watch, it's easy to get online. It's T-A-M-I, T-A-M-I, which stands for Teenage Music International, which is the stupidest name ever created. (laughs) But it was a concert that was conceived by a couple of producers back in 1964. And this is the lineup. And they all appeared in the same day, in the same afternoon, in an auditorium, in in San Diego, California, to 3000 kids from San Diego High School who made up the um, the audience because they needed an audience. So the on the bill was Leslie Gore, who was the biggest artist at the time when this was filmed. Right. You don't own me. was yep. a big song. Okay, Chuck Berry, Billy J. Kramer in the Dakotas, um, Jerry and the Pacemakers, the Supremes, the Miracles, Marvin Gaye, the Beach Boys in the original lineup, James Brown and the Rolling Stones. And they, all, and they all perform on the same day. And the Rolling Stones have gone on record as saying the biggest mistake they ever made was following James Brown on The Tammy Show. And when you watch James Brown on The Tammy Show, you will understand that's probably the single greatest performance ever put on by a human being in the history of all of mankind. And if you put in James Brown, Tammy Show, I urge your listeners to do that and put in Please, Please, and then put in Night Train and sit back and watch why Mick Jagger didn't want to walk out on stage following James Brown. Completely annihilated the sounds. Okay. However, um, I always cite three DVDs as being the most interesting DVDs, I've ever, the most interesting concerts I've ever seen, which is The Last Waltz, The Tammy Show, and Elvis Comeback Special. And invariably, I meet people um, who ask me these questions because the, of who I am or what I've known and what I've seen. And they always go, hey, man, what's the best show you ever saw? Or, hey, man, who's the best guitar player you ever heard? Or, hey, man, you know, and I'm always like, and I roll my eyes and I was at a wedding this summer and I was kind of just tired. And I was sitting on a chaise lounge, chaise lounge in the backyard of a, of a house. And my wife and I had gone to a wedding of my, of her friend's daughter. And I'm just minding my own business. And a guy walks up to me, he goes, Hey, can I just ask you a question? Like, what, what's the best show you ever saw? And I looked at him, I said, listen, let me, let me make this really easy for you. He said, get the last waltz, get this thing called the Tammy show. I'm sure you have no idea what it means. But just get it and Elvis comeback special and boom. And he goes, The Tammy show and Elvis comeback special. I said, Yeah. He goes, Okay. Dana, his wife walks over. He goes, Dana, hi, this is JJ French. You know Sharon's husband, Twisted Sister. Uh, tell JJ about your father. Oh, you mean my father, Steve Binder? Yeah, tell him about your father. Well, he's a TV producer, director, produced The Tammy show, Elvis comeback <laughs> special. I was,
0: uh,
1: What? Excuse me. She goes, my father, Steve Bender, produced all these television shows like the Elvis comeback special, the Tammy show. She goes, you ever hear the Tammy?" I'm like, <laughs> I said, I was, I said, uh, uh, um, excuse me. I get, I said, your father is the guy I've read quotes from this guy. So I know exactly who he is. Yeah. He's the, he's the guy who told Elvis that you better put on the leather jacket. Cause nobody knows who the fuck you are. And I'm not going to let you do the Las Vegas shtick on my television special. Okay. And Elvis says, I'm um, Elvis Presley goes, nobody knows who you are. And he walked Elvis across Sunset Boulevard and nobody recognized Elvis and said, Elvis went, oh, my God, nobody knows who I am. And this was three weeks after Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated in Vegas. So anyway, I say to this woman, I said, God, too bad your father's not around. I like to interview him. She goes, well, that's news to me. And she picks up her phone. <gasps> she says, hi, dad. I got somebody who wants to talk to you. <laughs> the phone. And I wound up doing a pod, my podcast. I interview him for two hours on my podcast, Steve Binder. So if you want to listen to the incredible story of the Tammy show and the incredible story of the Elvis comeback special, it's on my podcast, which is the JJ French connection, which is one of the beauty that I have of being able to be doing multiple things, including promoting my book, which we really haven't had a chance. To talk about.
0: <laughs> well, we are talking about <laughs> but, um, it because you're referencing a lot of the stuff that's in there. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the, the life and the time, you know, you, to go back to your dad, which is why I always ask that question. Your dad saw the, the light bulb and then the moon landing, right? In, from a music perspective, you saw the equivalent.
1: Yeah, you I know I The, think, the yeah, Beatles sure.
0: thing and, and going all the way up through the Elvis stuff. And, and you were a part of it because as powerful as Ed Sullivan and the Beatles appearance was, MTV had that kind of seismic effect on the trajectory, not just of rock and roll, but music in general. And the artist that saw the importance, understood the influence, and and capitalized on that, rode a wave. And you are a perfect example of a band that 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 was able to kind of be there at that right time and to see the importance of it.
1: Well, that, yes, but let me also, Put this in the mix here since my book is about reinvention yeah you know, how does a band stay? how do you how does an artist stay alive for five years 10 years 15 years you know go back to the class of 73 kiss acdc twisted sister judas priest all 73 if you would have asked any one of us in 73 how long we were going to last five years maybe we would have said 10 because the Beatles lasted from 60 to 70. Maybe we would have said 10 years. Here we are 50 years later. How did we all do it? And the fact is that we all reinvented ourselves on a number of occasions. And so my, what I say about twisted is we were turned down more times in a bed sheet and have come back more times than Michael Myers and Freddie Kruger. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that is true. Bigger than MTV though, if you were to say to me, how does Twisted Sister stay relevant today? Well, our songs, we're not going to take it. And I want to rock are the two most licensed songs in the history of heavy metal. There are more TV shows and commercials, the worldwide anthems. And if you would have asked me 30 years ago, about licensing, I'd say marriage licensing, um, <laughs> yeah. taxi, driver's licensing. What are you talking about? Nobody knew the power of advertisement.
0: Not only did not know it, but we pushed against it. I remember yeah. being on the air the day Led Zeppelin got licensed to the Cadillac commercial. Yes. And it was like, what are they doing? Why are they selling out like that? Because the rock fans didn't we didn't want what we held so dear to be something that
1: was exploited for commercial purposes like that. Yeah. Then when you kind of of realize
0: that the bands are, if the bands are in control of it, A and B how much money can be made for the bands we love, you got to accept it.
1: A lot of times too, the bands are not in control of it. People do not understand what song control means either. I mean they really don't. You know, the biggest mistake, the biggest misunderstanding is that when you a politician's making a speech and they use a song of a band, that you think A, the band supports the musician, and B, the band's being paid. That's the two biggest misunderstandings.
0: Which happens to Twisted it, Sister all the time.
1: All the time, but not just us, it happens to Queen, Rolling Stones, Fleetwood Mac. Uh, And the truth is that the artist, because you know about BMI and ASCAP, as long as a location pays their fees, you can play any song you want and you never have to ask the artist. And not only do you not ask the artist, the artist does not get paid. The artist gets paid zero. The writer gets paid. The artist does not get paid. So when you were at a baseball game and you hear Twisted Sisters, we're not going to take it, I want to rock, and you text me and you go, hey, JJ, man, I want to rock, ka-ching, I go, ka-ching, zero. Thank you very much. The artist gets paid nothing. That's the way the law is written. That's why – um, sound exchange is so important because it rewrote the rules and allowed internet to pay the artists. But as BMI do not pay the artists; they pay the writers. So that's a big mistake. The other thing is that the art, that the that the can't, that the politician plays the song at all. So what's your recourse? If you have no legal recourse and you have no legal recourse, the bands don't like to admit they have no legal recourse. It's embarrassing to tell your fans that you have no power, but in truth, you don't have any power. You can claim you have it, but you don't. So, what is your power? Your power is publicity. Your power is you hire a press agent, make a, and you make a, a press release. How dare you use our song? We hate you, and we're going to sue you. Well, the most of the time, the politician doesn't want the bad press, so politicians stop using the song, but not because they're going to get sued. Because you really don't get sued. I mean, that's you really you don't. I mean, are there clauses? Yeah, but the but you know the fact is is that. Or is that fans don't know how much artists don't control. Taylor Swift made a big deal about my records are owned by you know bad people. Guess what? Everybody's records are owned by bad people. Like you think you're the only one? How about the Beatles, Stones, Who's Up, Floyd, Grateful Dead, everybody else? They're all owned by other people and corporations. This misnomer that she's being, uh, it's like slave labor. Okay, I'm not going to deny that it's not a great deal for all of us, but we're all in the same boat. Every single one of us is in the same boat, and unless you are so strong that you've been able to renegotiate your way out of certain things or re-record your records, that's just how it is. End of story. You know, the Beatles don't own their masters. Universal owns the Beatles' masters. Beatles' masters were recorded 60 years ago. They're owned by Universal Music. Warner owns us as ninety. It owns 90 of everybody else's. And Jimmy, I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. Well, and
0: there's on. that famous story. About the, the rift between Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, because Michael Jackson bought all those Beatles
1: records. All the, the rights to the music. Yes. He the, the right, yes, he bought the rights to the music, and you can do what you want if you own their music. And by the way, when that song Rock and Roll was used by by uh, by um, the Zeppelin, I'm sure Zeppelin was never even asked, because they the rights were owned by Warner Music, or whoever owned their publishing. I don't know who owned their publishing at the time. I'm sure they never even asked them. They paid them right there's a difference that you get paid but you don't have to get permission from the artist now it just so happens that heritage artists like us zeppelin you know all these artists that existed prior to cds being manufactured had to the labels had to renegotiate because cds were not part of the contract and so we were able to 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 reclaim you know better deals but for the most part you know look it's a horrible business in many ways it's draconian in many ways. But um, if Twisted hadn't been as successful as they were, you and I wouldn't be talking and nobody would care about my story either. So how, what is the key to it? The key to it is being around long enough to take advantage of all the different things that come up. So yes, to, to your point about MTV, MTV was the perfect nexus of our image and our music at the right place at the right time. It also was the nexus that took us apart. Because as big as we became, the backlash also occurred uh, and we didn't follow it up correctly, which I describe in the book. One thing people need to understand about the book is I describe the entire history of the band and the bankruptcies that involved itself. This was not in a vacuum and this was not unknown to me. Um, I always swore that I would never not not know whatever happened. I always knew what happened and series of events occurred that just occurred. If you read the history of the Beatles, they were near bankruptcy in 1968. You know, this is the Beatles when you're The Rolling Stones didn't start making money until 1980. Neither did the Who. And these bands had years of hit records out. Um, So in much the same way that you look at a baseball player who's making a zillion dollars and you say to yourself, how is he making a zillion dollars? Because he had the career year, the year that he was able to be set free. And that's really what you had to be. You had to be around long enough so that by the time you were free enough to do something, you were still powerful enough to mean something. And that's why the ones who succeeded, succeeded. Now, Twisted had its ups and downs, enormous ups and downs. There's four eras of Twisted in my mind. There's the bar band era, which went from 73 to 82. There was the super successful video album era, which went from 82 to 88. Then there was the dark period where we all disappeared, broke up, stopped functioning as a band. Although the band kept going, I kept going with it, but we stopped playing. And that was 12 years. That took us to 2000. And then there was the return following the nine 11 catastrophe in which we did a benefit to raise money from the New York city police and Firemen's fund. And that led that heralded an incredible 14 years of headlining Huge festivals, the biggest festivals in the world and releasing a Christmas record and reestablishing the band's career, which had that not happened, the book wouldn't be half as interesting as it is because the band, like I said, has come back over and over and over again. And what the book is, it's like someone said to me the other day, this is like a Tony Robbins book in a way. It's like, you know, you're the Tony Robbins of heavy metal Um, because I give you I teach in the book, the twisted method of reinvention. That's really what the book is about. It's a memoir. And it's a business book. It's a biz war. I coined that phrase. But the fact that it's a teachable format is really what I'm most proud of. You know, uh, it's a teachable book. I teach the Twisted method of reinvention using the name Twisted as the as the as the anagram. So it's tenacity, wisdom, inspiration, stability, trust, excellence and discipline. And I give exact descriptions of what happened to the band's history and why these letters meant what they meant. And that applies to not just heavy metal, it applies to every form of music, but not just music. I get hired by corporations to do speaking engagements to billionaires. Now, why would that be the case? Here I am, a former drug addict, former drug dealer, heavy metal guitar player, high school dropout, and yet I am giving business lessons and teaching business lessons to people who are businessmen. Um, And that's because the School of Hard Knocks, which was heavy metal, which is the life I grew up in, taught me lessons that are apparently universal enough. And my co-writer, Steve Farber, who is a brilliant writer and a successful businessman as well, helped me to articulate into this story, which is what makes the book not your average sex, drugs, rock and roll, fairy dust, you know, story. It's not. It's really different.
0: Well, I talked to Dee a few months ago and we were talking about 2021 being this big anniversary year, the 50th anniversary of all the 1971 records you were talking about. And the 30th anniversary of those 1991 records, he described the ushering in of grunge as that you guys were delivered a telegram that said the world doesn't want what you do anymore. And the world is not interested in what you do anymore. It's over.
1: Yeah. In fact, we got that telegram a year before everybody else got that telegram. And that's why the band was able to disappear so famously perfectly because it didn't destroy us. We were already gone. We were at, you know, we're, we're over by 1988, we were done. That all hit in 90, 91. And when that hit, that was like care today, gone tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, that was the destruction of winger white lion, you know, uh, warrant, trickster Rat, firehouse tricksters, all gone. All. Like that was, that was the giant meteor that came in and destroyed them what happened with twisted was we kind of left the scene and we're kind of hermetically sealed in a, in a plasticine capsule. <laughs> and then, then at the right time we pop back up, it was kind of like, you know, the war's coming, everybody get in the bunker. And we'll we're like a bear in hibernation, we pop out fully formed again. And all of a sudden everyone's going, wow, where have you guys been? And we really miss you. It's been 13 years. And we wind up headlining the biggest festivals in the world and not just any festival. We're talking the heaviest heavy metal festivals, death metal festivals, because they revered Twisted Sister, which they don't necessarily revere Motley or Rat or Winger or any of those bands because the the Southern California thing was not that. Twisted was a different animal. In much the same way that Kiss is a different animal. These are New York bands with New York attitudes. Yeah. You know, there's always there's been this- that
0: East Coast New West Coast different. difference in rock and roll. It's always yeah. been there. It's it was obviously there in hip hop, but That Southern California, L.A., Hollywood Boulevard vibe. And then like the grittiness of the New York rock scene, just totally different.
1: Completely different. Yeah, Yeah, totally different. And and I I love the fact that we're from New York. You know, all, all of us were born in New York City. I was born in Manhattan. AJ was born in Staten Island. He was born in the Bronx. D and Mark were both born in Queens. I mean, we're New York guys, and New York has a speed and a tempo that 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 it travels in. And if this doesn't shake you, nothing shakes you. You know, like that's just really the bottom line. Is like growing up in New York City is one of the greatest experiences in the world. I tell that to my daughter when she was growing up. I said, "Listen, sweetheart," I said, "If this is nothing to you, if New York is boring." if this shit is boring, I said, the rest of the world is going to be cake because this is as crazy as it gets. You know, I mean, you know, people in Dubuque wake up and go, I want to go to New York. You don't necessarily wake up and go, I want to be in Dubuque tomorrow. Not that the, not people from
0: Boston.
1: (laughs) No, this is true. That analogy you
0: had with twisted about, about how you guys were this, this gritty kind of suburb band that like didn't care about like what the kids in the city were doing. That completely encompasses the Boston attitude is that we are we are that we're just far enough away and just small enough where we have to deal with you fucking guys. But we're just over here in our own universe. And like, that's kind of where that attitude and rivalry comes from.
1: Yeah, it's so, you know, you are really the only person I've ever <laughs> spoken to really gets that, man, you know, and you do it because you really experienced it. But yeah, that and the thing is that I'm a Manhattan guy. So by all rights, I should not be the suburban heavy metal guitar player. Right. You know, I should be in my own version of Velvet Underground. But I became a champion of the suburban stuff because I saw the value in it. And then I said, well, fuck you, you elitist, you know, like rock, roll hall of fame idiots. You know, screw you guys. You know, you don't respect what we do. We don't respect what you do. So that is so, Mistress Carrie, I'm very
0: impressed. <laughs> Thank you.
1: I am extremely impressed. I'm so happy that 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 nuance was felt by you. Absolutely. And your, and your and your people. So where how so where do you where do you put it now? Where do you see? things at this
0: I mean point. you know what when you were talking about these new generations of rock bands and are they there and and I do have some hope that I I think in order for rock to kind of move forward it has to do two things it has to tip its cap to where it came from which I think you're seeing a lot of bands like you know like a Dirty Honey or, or even a Greta Van Fleet even though they get they get a lot of flack for being derivative or whatever. And then you're going to see people like a Wolfgang Van Halen, where when it comes to raw talent, he could change his last name and there's enough ability and talent in his own right there that I feel like he would be writing songs that are eventually... Like, I I don't see rock dying, but when I interview new bands, which I do a lot, um, they talk about you know, that that the the bands that came before them have to be willing to pass that baton and let them run this next leg of the race the way that they run. That when you're in a relay race, you're not going to run just like the person behind you. And so every kind of generation, and I think things need to be torn down and destroyed for them to grow back again. And, and, and so I think, I, I have a lot of hope that there are going to be generations of music of musicians that are going to grow up with every access to every toy and technology and to be different and rebel they're going to go back to the old way the analog way the yeah, stripped the, down way but
1: the, the rules though for me is you still have to you still have to work hard yes you still have to and you know and twisted played thousands of shows and yeah. we learned the hard way and so when bands tell me to come and see them I say this in the book, you know, a band, a guy would come up to me and go, Hey, JJ, I want you to see my band. I go, really? How long have you been together? They go two years. Oh, cool. How many shows you played? We played 50, man. A lot. I go, Oh, 50 shows in the last two years. Really? 50 shows. Really? Yeah. I said, Oh, okay. So um, when you get to 500, let me know. I'll come and see you. They go 500. We never get to 500. So, well, there's a good chance I'm never going to come and see your fucking band because you're going to suck until you hit about 500 shows. And I really don't have the time to spend to watch your band grow. So grow. They go, how many shows you do? Well, if you look at my book, in the first year alone, we did 120 shows a month. So we were at 1,400 shows for the first year, 3,000 shows by year two, 4,000 shows by year three in terms of performances, four 45-minute, five 45-minute shows. That's how you get good. And now, it's hard now s- because
0: there's no venues. Well,
1: see, here's And the, the thing. radio
0: stations are gone too, a right, lot of them.
1: Right, So Okay, so then they go, so give me some advice. Because it's not like it was when you were 20. Right. And I said, okay, here's some advice. I said, number one, the fact that you're asking a 70-year-old guy advice is kind of interesting because you shouldn't be asking me my advice. You should know what the fuck you're doing. Otherwise, you're in the wrong business. That's truly how I feel. Because at 20, I didn't know the rules. I just kind of looked around and saw the rules. I learned really quick. And I call it observing your playing field. Okay, sure. It's true. Gasoline is not 23 cents a gallon. And Richard Nixon is not president of the United States like he was when I started. And McDonald's were only at 1 million when we started. I mean, that's how draconianly long ago it was. Um, truck rental was $25 a week when we started. House rental was $300 a month. Okay, that was our reality. And you made $150 a night playing. And you could you could come up with a formula to sustain yourself. I said, okay, granted, you don't have that right now. What do you have? Well, we can, we have social media. I go, great. Okay. Any bands that you see are doing better than you right now? Like local bands that are kind of like your age, they're kind of doing the kind of music that are having some success. Yeah. I said, well, then copy exactly what they're doing. That's exactly what we did. I said, at some point you will take off on your own, but before you're the Beatles, you better be better than the band next door. And if you're not better than the band next door, you've got no shot. So look around. See the bands that are out there and say to yourself, I can at least get to that level. And when you get to that level, by any way that you figure out, because it's not hard to figure out why they got to that level. Then once you do that, you've established that benchmark, then you can move on to the next level. Because you know what? Every generation, as you point out, has their own rules of the game. Yeah. But the rules in terms of the big picture never change
0: yeah the the tenacity the change. hard work the the be willing to do to scrape up the mountainside to figure it out those those life lessons don't don't never ever change. change
1: right they never change I don't care what you're doing yeah that doesn't change so you can give me all the other peripherals and give me every excuse in the world why you don't want to follow those rules you won't be successful because and every artist by the way I don't care if it's Madonna Jay-Z, if you last in this business 20, 30, 40 years, you have my ultimate respect. I, I don't care what kind of music you do. It shows me that you were willing to sacrifice everything you were ever had in your life to get what you wanted. And that's what Twisted Sister did. And, and you know, without Dee's sacrifice, Mark's sacrifice, Eddie's sacrifice, you wouldn't be talking to me right now. These guys put their ass on the line, took every risk in the world with no net protecting us underneath it. None. We just went out there and grabbed every opportunity we could and took advantage of every situation, good and bad. And the book describes all of them. Everyone took an enormous risk. Remember, a musician is an entrepreneur. And there's, there's two reasons why you become an entrepreneur. One is that you've either invented something new that you can't wait for the world to find out, and you're willing to risk everything in the world to show the world that, or you want to improve on an existing model. When it comes to the music business, you want to improve on an existing models. Plenty of bands before Twisted Sister. Okay, how are you improving on what are you doing that's so special and so unique that's going to make it happen? And are you willing to sacrifice everything in your life, every personal relationship, financial protection you have? If you're willing to go that far, your chances of success are greatly increased. And you could look at me and go, well, it's so easy for you to say, JJ, you did it. I said, yeah, on the way to that road, I lost everything multiple times, went bankrupt, uh, was broke, was suicidal. You know, the, the stories of what happened to the band in the bar scene, the threats, the trucks getting blown up, the band members that almost murdered other band members. I'm sorry, Mr. Scaris, when I signed on at the age of 20, it was not for any of that shit. I just thought I was joining a band and being a <laughs> guitar player. I didn't know that I was going to get my ass kicked 20,000 times. I didn't know that I was going to be threatened. I didn't know that I was going to witness near murders. I didn't know that I was going to watch ODs, uh, drug ODs. I didn't know any of that stuff but as every one of those things hit us how we adapted to it continued to change is 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 really what the story of the band is about you know d is the greatest frontman on the planet earth and i've seen them all i don't ever think there's a better performer or singer than him i don't think so so if I have a look at the guy to my left who I've been shoulder to shoulder with for thousands of shows and I've never seen a more dedicated human being, I, 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 I strap myself to that. He strapped himself to me between the two of us, between the business portion of my head and the creativity on his head. That's what pushed this locomotive. That's what pushed the train. And Eddie and Mark trusted us to make those right decisions. And I describe that in the book because you don't have five chiefs in a company never happens but you have to have faith in the people who are doing those things these guys had faith that we weren't steering them the wrong way and that's what makes why is Aerosmith successful 50 years later you know there's a test there's things to be said seven dust let's talk about them seven dust has lasted 25 years in the original lineup you know when people ask me how i feel about seven dust i'll say putting everything else aside I would say that to have Twisted Sister with a nearly 50-year career and being involved in a band called Seven Dust with a 25-year career, I'd say I won the jackpot twice. I say that I, I found organizations that that stood the test of time. Seven Dust has stood the test of time. I am Still so one proud of the greatest of live
0: bands I've ever seen. Yeah.
1: I'm so proud of them. They're still out there. They're still doing it. It's a testament to them that they've lasted all this time.
0: I When I talk to Dee, and you'll appreciate this, obviously, because you guys are so close, um, I saw a very humbling moment with D and I asked him a question that I ask all of the musicians and artists that I have on the show. And I'm going to, I'm going to pose the same question to you, but I want to tell you what D's response was because it pained his soul to say it out loud. I always ask songwriters and musicians, give me an example of a song, any song, any genre, any artist, whatever that you believe is so well crafted from a songwriter's perspective. That you covet it and wish you wrote it because you consider it perfect songwriting technique. D. Snyder had to take a breath and say out loud on my show that he believed Wanted Dead or Alive from Bon Jovi was a perfect song and told me the story about how he used to go to your shows, that John Bon Jovi used to go to Twisted shows and hang out by the bathrooms to, see, to meet the girls as they walked by. Dee yeah. Snyder on my show said Wanted Dead or Alive was a perfect song.
1: Well, I happen to think Bon Jovi is a phenomenal band, too. They
0: are. They wouldn't have lasted band. this long if they, great, if they didn't. He's weren't. a great
1: singer and a great songwriter. You know, I think he's a great singer and a great songwriter. So give me if, your
0: example of songwriting.
1: Well, I'm not a songwriter per se, although I do write occasionally. I have a country artist who I write songs with. And there's a song I haven't written yet. It's called You're Not Allowed to Suck in Nashville because you're not allowed to suck in Nashville. True. You know, if you're you'd just be taken out and shot. Yeah. So there's a tie, there's a song to be written, you know, that not, But um I would say among the most masterful songwriting was uh probably um Dylan's um oh god, which one? Positively Fourth Street like the Rolling Stone um there's so many Dylan songs that are absolutely phenomenal and uh, and Lennon and uh, in my life by the by the Beatles I think Mm -hmm. is spectacular Uh, I think a day in the life is spectacular I think in my life though is one of those songs that makes me want to cry every time I hear it you know it's just you know John Lennon said the only real songs he ever wrote I read somewhere in an interview recently, he said the only two real songs he ever wrote that actually were not songs written by contract, meaning like, you guys got to write five songs today, you know, because let's not even talk about the talent it takes to write on order. (laughs) Let's put that aside, which is insane.
0: Not only write on order, but then write
1: like at that level on order. Yes,
0: exactly. Like,
1: forget that. But he said that help and in my life are the only two songs. I think that, that, that were true. Because uh, he was in desperate, he was in desperate psychological distress during help. Help was truly a cry, a cry for help. Help, I need somebody help. I need anybody. Yeah, I didn't know that. I just thought it was a song written for the movie because he needed a song. And in my life. Um,
0: well, I had this total epiphany moment when I watched that Rick Rubin series with Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. because The Beatles were the gift that my mother gave me for music. The Beatles were my introduction into my love of rock and roll, even though I wasn't alive to see Ed Sullivan. That is the soundtrack to my childhood, is the Beatles. And watching McCartney talk to Rick Rubin about the upbringing of Lennon and McCartney and how diametrically opposed they were, the broken, sad home and the functional... You know, traditional childhood, and what those two separate experiences—the cynicism of Lenin and the and the hope and happiness of McCartney—and how those two things put together, with either happy melodies and sad lyrics or sad melodies and happy lyrics—that combination is what made the Beatles great. And even though I've listened to those songs thousands of times, when I watched Paul McCartney describe it that way, my head exploded because the music of help is not sad, but the lyrics totally different.
1: Yeah. Totally different. I mean, totally different. So, you know, just one bit of beautiful trivia for you. So John wrote hard days, night, it's one of the only songs he's ever written in which he couldn't sing the middle eight and Paul had to come in and bail him out when I'm home. Everything seems to be right. I wasn't, that was Paul because John couldn't hit those notes. Wow, you know, uh, you know, which is kind of interesting, you know, cause it's a beautifully written song too. But anyway, yeah. So there was just, um, Dylan has probably ten of them, and yeah, the Beatles have the rest of them and and of course, there's great songs by Elton and you know and and Cat Stevens. I think Father to Son by Cat Stevens is devastating. I think American Pie is an incredible piece of work. You know, I got a chance to interview Don McLean. And I just said, man, I said, I know you're sick of explaining American Pie. And trust me, Don, you don't need to explain it to me. I know every meaning of every sentence. I don't really care. You don't need to explain it to me. I just need to know what was the catalyst that made you sit down and write that song. And he said he was reading an article on The Death of Buddy Holly. And he thought how ironic that he died to do his laundry. That's why he got on the plane, because he wanted to do his laundry. And he gave and Waylon Jennings gave up his seat. And said, "If you need your laundry that bad, you fly, and I'll take the bus." I didn't
0: know that it was the laundry that was the
1: reason yeah. why they changed yeah. seat. Yeah, wow. wanted to uh, do the laundry, and he goes, and I'm reading this thing, going, "Rock and roll history was made that day because he wanted to do his fucking laundry."
0: It's ridiculous. And
1: he said, "I'm sitting at my, t- I'm sitting in my house, and and all of a sudden, out of my mouth comes, a long, long time ago, I can still remember." how that music made me smile. He said, it just came out. I love stories like
0: that. Yeah, me too.
1: Me too. Incredible.
0: Well, thank you so much for hanging out with me today.
1: I love, I'm sorry. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry for being late.
0: Oh, don't worry about it. It's rock and roll time.
1: It is, man. Yeah, right. I'll just listen. I met Keith Richards gastroenterologist at a party and you're not supposed to even put the words Keith Richards and gastroenterology in the same <laughs> sentence because it makes people crack up. Right. But I actually did meet Keith Richards gastroenterologist many years ago at a party, which I thought was like, so this, this surgeon says that's Keith Richards gastroenterologist over there. He said, why don't you go talk to him? I said, I can't talk to him because I'm not supposed to know he's a freaking gastroenterologist. Yeah, right. And he goes, he goes, he knows who you are. Just go. So I walk over to the guy and I went, wow, Keith Richards, gastroenterologist. I said, I didn't expect to hear those two phrases used yeah. in the same sentence. I said, can I ask you a question? He goes, you can ask me anything you want, but I guarantee you I cannot answer the right. question. I went, I'll bet you, you can. And he goes, okay, what's the question? And I said, are even you amazed? And he went, <laughs> <laughs> and he went. Yes, frankly. I, I see am now amazed. that's
0: a perfectly worded question because you skirted HIPAA perfectly. Nicely done, JJ.
1: Thank you. And his answer was equally yes. correct. Which was yes, yeah. I am amazed. Yeah. Well no 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 other things were said. And he is a force Mr. Richards is a God given force of nature.
0: It just, it does show the uh the resilience and tenacity of the human body. <sighs>
1: So long as he's living, there's a chance for all of this world to survive. Keith really is the guy. You know, his guitar solo on Down the Road a Piece, which was a Chuck Berry guitar solo that he played note for note on on the Rolling Stones album. That was my first Rolling Stones album that I ever heard. Um, I didn't know it was a Chuck Berry song at that time. And I wanted to learn that guitar riff. That guitar riff that Keith plays that took from Chuck Berry is the guitar riff that forms the foundation of every solo I have ever recorded. Every solo I've ever recorded the, the, the opening from down the road piece. If you want to know the foundation of SMF, can't stop rock and roll, all that stuff. It's all on that riff that that was done. And that was taught to me by my neighbor in 1966. And I met Keith's manager last summer at a party. And I said, you know, I just, you know, I don't know Keith, but I read his book, loved his book. Uh, I said, "Um, but I just, if you just tell him that was his inspiration for me. You know, the man is the man lives and breathes every essence of what rock and roll should ever be described. If you're going to go describe unapologetic,
0: era, true to yourself, completely. not given a fuck. Those are all life lessons that we should all steal from from Keith Richards.
1: Yeah, Yeah, we should. should. Anyway, (laughs) thank you so much. You're so welcome.
0: Thank you. Congratulations on the book. And uh, Mm -hmm. it was good to catch up. And and nice to know that that New York Boston rivalry thing is still nice and whole there.
1: And still remembered by some of us. Absolutely. To the
0: bone marrow.
1: Take care. See you
0: later. Thank you. Bye bye. There he is, the one and only J.J. French. See, I told you, we could have talked about music for hours. His new book, Twisted Business, Tales from My Life in Rock and Roll, is available everywhere. And you can find more details on the book and all the links to find J.J. online and on social in the show notes of this podcast. There's also a link to the corresponding playlist. For every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast, I put a playlist up there so you can find all the music that we talked about in this episode. And this episode, there was a lot. You'll also find all of my links as well. So if you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. Thanks to our sponsor, Digital Federal Credit Union. You can find them at dcu.org. With the holidays rolling around, why not give a little Mistress Carrie as a gift this year? Log on to MistressCarrie.com and shop in my official store. And you can find me every Tuesday night at 8.30 live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room. The Mistress Carrie Podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.